Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and welcome to the Gospel According to Moses, Genesis. We'll be focusing in on the verses Genesis 25, verses 12 through 28. We're going to talk about three concepts that come out of these verses. One of them is we're going to discuss the fact that the Arabs are not descendants of Ishmael. It's a complex topic, you guys. I've got a link for you, actually two links at the website. So if you go to the website, www.lightofmenorah.org, remember menorah is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H, and light of menorah is all one word, www.lightofmenorah.org. If you find the uh, uh, this podcast, you'll see the introduction to this podcast and in that introduction will be these links one link will be to a website where uh, i show you actually a number of clear facts biblical and historical facts that definitely show that the arabs cannot be descendants of ishmael also i've sent you a link to an article that i did a research article that also shows that Allah of the Quran, of Islam, is not the God of the Bible. He is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Israel, the Creator of God. So that link is there as well. At any rate, just as an example, one aspect of all of this is when you start studying the Arabs, we find that they are a pan-ethic group of people, pan-ethic. In other words, they come from a variety of people groups. So, for instance, one of them was a people group, ancient people group, in the, call it the uh, people group of Dilman, and or the kingdom of Dilman. This is in eastern Saudi Arabia on the Persian Gulf in the area of Bahrain. And archaeology shows that Dilmon, this group of people, dates back to the beginning of the 4th century B.C. That's 3,000 B.C. That's a thousand years before Abraham and Isaac. Abraham entered Canaan in the year 2091 B.C. according to biblical archaeological dating. And again, if you go to the website, I have that link to Genesis lesson number 27 where we get into this biblical dating in detail and show that indeed, from an archaeological historical perspective, Abraham entered Canaan 2091. Well, you'd say, wait a minute, the Arabs are descended from the Dilmon group that's dated to the fourth millennium, the, the beginning of the fourth millennium, and that's a thousand years before Abraham. So again, guys, it's real history. Archaeology shows that indeed the Arabs are not descendants from Ishmael. And that just goes, and it goes against all of the false claims in Islam. They're like CNN. Talk about CNN in our current times. You know, fake news. Uh, that was... Uh, so clear in the uh, Trump administration, President Trump administration, when they talked about CNN doing false news reports. So I talk about Islam making their claims that they're descendants of Ishmael as corrupt, C, non-truthful, N, news, CNN. So uh, they have their own aspects of CNN. 
So a second topic that we're going to get into is a topic about a very specific place called the Wilderness of Shur. This is a very precise location in the Bible. And there are those who claim that Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia, and they actually moved this wilderness of Shur so that was able to support their claims. They moved it to the western shores of the Gulf of Aqaba. Now you remember Mount Sinai is a triangular shape. You've got the Red Sea on the left, the Gulf of Aqaba on the right. And these people claim that uh, the Hebrews crossed the Sinai Peninsula and crossed the Gulf of Aqaba when Pharaoh was chasing them. And so therefore the wilderness ashore has to be in Saudi Arabia, but the Bible says no. These pseudo-scholars have a lot to answer for because they're actually trying to say that the Bible says something different. The Bible says in Exodus 15, verse 22, that when the Hebrews crossed the Reed Sea, it's actually Yom Suf, they entered an area called the Wilderness of Shur. And so like I said, these pseudo-scholars, there's not one proven archaeologist, not one proven uh, Bible historian that uh, holds to this theory. It's a theory. So again, they uh, also need to answer to this and say, how can you move that territory when the territory is in the northern Sinai between Gaza and Egypt? So we'll be taking a look at that topic as well. A third topic we're going to look at is Genesis 25-27, where it says, Jacob uh, was a peaceful man who lived in tents and that Rebecca favored him and all of a sudden something today that he's a mama's boy. I've actually heard this preached on Sunday that he's a mama's boy. Far from it. Wait till we get into the background of Jacob and what it says in Hebrew. We're going to find that based upon the Hebrew, what the Hebrew says he is, his, fa his priority is the family. The preservation of the Beit Av, the house of the father. The firstborn son stands with his dad, in this case Isaac, to be the one who helps maintain the Beit Av. So this is a major priority, priority in those days, and it seems like Rebecca sees her son Jacob as the one who's focused in on what the firstborn is supposed to be focused in on. So we got some interesting things to take a look at in these verses. So, ready? Let's begin. Okay, let's go back to Genesis 25, verses 12 through 18. I got a couple of comments in here that I think you may find interesting. Not that they're spiritually explosive or going to have that amazing effect on us of getting closer to God, but there are a couple of things that we need to take a look at. So in Genesis 25, verses 12 through 18, in Fox translation. Now these are the beginnings of Ishmael, son of Abraham, 
whom Hagar, the Egyptian woman, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names after the order of their begettings. Ishmael's firstborn is Navayot, and Kedar, and Adbeel, uh, and then uh, Mivzam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, and Tima, Yetur, Nafish, and Kedma. I'd like to have a kid by the name of Masa. Oh, okay. Now coming on, playing linebacker for White Bear Lake, number 33, Masa. Okay, just Hadad, Tima, Yetur, Nafish, Kedma. These are the sons of Ishmael. These, their names in their villages and in their corrals, 12 leaders of their tribes. It's very interesting, 12, okay? And there's going to be 12 tribes of Israel as well. These are the leaders of the life of Ishmael, 100 years, and uh, these are the years of, of his life, 100 years and 30 years and 7 years, then he expired. He died and was gathered to his kinspeople. And they dwelt from Havilah to Shur, which faces Egypt, back to where you come toward Assyria, in the presence of all of his brothers did his inheritance fall. So it's two comments about this. One, um, this is not a commentary on um, um, trying to understand Islam and trying to understand the Muslim people, but quite clearly Ishmael is not the father of the Arabs, period. He is not. It is a very complex subject, okay? It, 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 it takes a while. I mean, it, it's not something that you can just read. Um, but it's a thing that you have to study. Let me give you just some examples. The Ishmaelites are written about in the ancient Assyrian records. So ancient Assyria, not Syria, Assyria. Okay, And they're saying the Ishmaelites, and they basically said they were a distinct tribe of people. And they didn't live in Arabia. Now the Assyrians are telling this. This is ancient. This is not Christians trying to disagree with Muslims. This is ancient Assyrians. Now the other thing is, in our own Bible, in Genesis 37, uh, 25 through 28, we find that the Ishmaelites somehow were absorbed with the Midianites. And the Midianites were absorbed with the Ishmaelites. Somehow there's a connection. Okay? And the Midianites were descendants of Lot. So all of a sudden you'd say, wait a minute, the Midianites and the Ishmaelites are connected. And so the Midianites are not in any way associated with Arabs. Now in Genesis chapter 10, verse 7, this gets interesting. If you read the chapter, it's just going to say that there was this guy, Ra'amah, and he had two sons, Sheva and, and, uh, and uh, let me see, Sheva and Didan, okay? These two boys. Now, when you understand these two boys, Sheva and Didan, we actually have real history about these two. In Ezekiel 38.13, Ezekiel mentions Sheva, and we find that he actually populated Northern Arabia. Okay, now he is a descendant, okay, this Sheva is a descendant of Ishmael. Wait, hang on just for a second. Oh, I'm sorry. This is Genesis 10, verse 7. Sorry. Genesis 10, verse 7. This is thousands of years before Ishmael. 
okay? And Sheva dwelt in northern Arabia. His brother, Dedan, in Isaiah 21, 13 and other places, also lived in northern Arabia. And we have ancient texts from ancient Babylon that they were traitors in the Arabian area. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the original Arabs. Didan and Sheva. Now those are just two. There are others. Ishmael and some of his sons were part of that, but you have to understand the Arabs come from a group of people way before Ishmael. On top of that, I didn't know this, okay? But we have archaeology that actually shows the towns and palaces of these two, okay? Sheva and Didan, and their areas in northern Arabia way before the days of Abraham. So we have archaeological proof. So the Arabs come from them because if Ishmael is the sole source of the Arabs, then the original Arabs are gone, which makes no sense. Okay? There's another interesting thing in the Quran. Uh, it's written that Abraham and Ishmael, Abraham and Ishmael, they went to Mecca. This is about 2000 BC, together, okay, father and son. And they built the Kaaba. Now, the Kaaba is that box at Mecca, okay, where they walk around it. That's the Kaaba, that's the shrine. So that's about 2000 BC. There is no, none, nada, nothing. Not one trace of archaeological evidence that Mecca even existed in 2000 BC. There was nothing there. Now, every Muslim will completely disagree with you, okay, because you're a Christian, and besides, you're wrong, okay? So, the earliest records that we have about Mecca is from the 4th century A.D., because we do have records about a Yemeni tribe called Kuza'ah, okay, that actually built the village. It wasn't called Mecca at the time, okay. So it's really fascinating when you get into all the details behind this, uh, because we actually take a look at this history and the, sorry, the, so, I mean, they say this is, he's the father of the Muslims, okay. Well, if you're, if you're Turkish, and you practiced the Islam, you're not Arab. So Ishmael is not your descendant. He's not the father of the Turks, not the father of the Iranians. The Iranians are not Arab. So there's a lot of confusion in Islam today that if you're a believer, you're a Muslim, okay, that all of a sudden you say Ish Ishmael is the father of our faith. Well, he's not even the father of your faith. He's the father of the Arabs, and that's wrong. Okay, so it's interesting. The other thing that I want to do is this. It says in 2518 that they dwelt from Havila to Shur, which faces Egypt, back to where you come toward Assyria. And one way of saying that in a better way is this. They dwelt from Havila to Shur, which is on the way from Egypt to Assyria. Now I want you to picture, if you can, where Egypt is. 
Okay? You can see the coast, the Mediterranean, as it curves up. Assyria, the ancient empire of Assyria, is basically Syria, um, eastern Turkey, Iran, and Iraq. All that area, that's Assyria. Now, how do you get there? You'd say, well, the easiest way to get there is the coastal road, the International Coastal Highway, which goes from Egypt through Israel, through Lebanon, and goes to Assyria. That's the way. That's the direct route. And the Bible is telling us it's on the way from Egypt to Assyria. Now, there are people... Now, this is really important, okay? There are people who say, some say that Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. They have a theory. And they have lots of stuff that they will tell you about. And they'll say things about chariot wheels and all sorts of stuff. One of the things that they do is they locate the wilderness of Shur on the eastern shores of Saudi Arabia. Now I want you to picture that. Okay, think about the Sinai Peninsula. Okay, it's like a triangle, right? These people who say that Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia said they crossed the Gulf of Aqaba, not the Suez. They crossed there. And the Bible says exactly, clearly, okay, that, they, that the Hebrews, after they crossed the sea, Yom Supf, okay, they entered the wilderness of Shur. Now, this is interesting. If Sinai is in Saudi Arabia, you need to have the wilderness of Shur or the area of Shur in Saudi Arabia. You have to, because the Bible says that's where they crossed and they entered Shur. Now, Genesis 20, verse 1, I'm not going to go there, but in Genesis 20, verse 1, matter of fact, I will go there. I just wanted to double check who we're talking about here. Genesis 20, verse 1. Oh, Abraham. Abraham traveled from there to the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, sojourning in Gerar. So where is Shur? Near Gerar. Where's Gerar? It's a wadi, okay, near what you would say is Gaza, okay, and also Beersheba. And I've been there. I've actually walked inside that wadi, Wadi Gerar. So it is on the western side of Israel, okay, just north of Egypt. Now, in 1 Samuel 15, 7, okay, Saul defeats the Amalekites, and he defeats them at Shur. Now, wait a minute. If the people who say Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia, that means Shur is on the eastern or the western shores of Saudi Arabia, way down at the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula, it can't be, because that means Saul would have to travel hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to actually defeat the Amalekites. But the Amalekites never lived in Saudi Arabia. They're not Arabs. They, we know from archaeology, were in northern Sinai. 1 Samuel 27, verse 8. The Amalekites are defeated by David near Shur. Now David, in the situation, he was actually, if you remember, he was being chased by Saul. Chased by Saul here and there. It's a number of years pass. Somebody mentioned to me it's like 10, maybe 12 years. Anyway, David has had it. 
And he said, to King Akish, he's a Philistine, and he said, King Akish, I've had it. Um, I'm going to join with you. Why don't you use me uh, for guarding your roads? I'll be glad to do that with my 600 men. And he did. And King Akish, okay, gave him a city. The city is called Ziklag. That's in the Bible. And you'll remember that Ziklag was uh, captured by the Amalekites. And it was burned down, but nobody was killed. And David came there with his 600 men, seeing that his wives and children were taken. And he inquired of God, and God said, Go, you, I'll, give you the, I'll give you the Amalekites in your hand. Now, this is interesting. We know where Ziklag is. It's in the Negev. It's in southern Israel. He's not, on the, he's not in Saudi Arabia. That's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. So David went from Shur, and it says as far as Egypt, to defeat the, um, to defeat the Amalekites. So guys, Shur, this, this is so interesting, only for the simple reason the Bible is so clear, okay, that Shur is not on the eastern or western shores of Saudi Arabia. In Exodus 15, 22, you read about Moses leading the people across the sea. And it says they entered the wilderness of Shur. So those that say Mount Sinai, again, is in Saudi Arabia, contradict the Bible. The Bible is absolutely clear that if you take a look at the Sinai Peninsula, that the northern call it one-fourth of the Sinai Peninsula, okay, from the Mediterranean, one-fourth of the way down, is the wilderness of Shur. So, those that hold to that theory, they've got a challenge. They really have to explain how they can get the wilderness of Shur all the way down into Saudi Arabia when it contradicts the Bible. Very interesting. Now, we're going to deal with this big time, okay? We're going to deal, we're not in Exodus yet. We've got to finish Genesis. So when we get to Exodus, so be back next fall, okay? So you guys from Norway, and we'll be dealing with Exodus, we'll be dealing with this. Where is Mount Sinai? I don't know. Nobody does, okay? But hey, we'll deal with that a little bit later on. But again, like I said, those people that do have the theory and argue for the case that Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia, this is one of many biblical facts that they have to contend with. Okay? Okay. A couple of interesting things that I wanted to share with you. So we got about some 25 minutes, 23 minutes left to go. So what I wanted to do is go to Genesis 25, verses 22 through 27. And I'm not going to read it per se, but that's where I'm at. We are so familiar with this, you guys. I mean, these events. It's Jacob and Esau. Jacob is born. He's holding on to the heel. There's the birthright. A bowl of soup. Rebecca and Jacob, they deceive Isaac. Isaac is deceived. Esau finds out about it. He wants to kill Jacob. Jacob leaves. He wants to marry Rachel. He get, I mean, all of, this is so 
familiar with this, uh, with us. What I want to do is I want to take you deeper. Because there are things that we, that I could not see. And so, since I couldn't see them, okay, maybe you can't see them, so I'm going to share this with you, okay? Only for the simple reason, I had a ball learning this stuff. So I'm going to take a look about real history, real culture, and real archaeology. So, in this situation, I'm not reading the verses, but it says, God speaks to Rebecca, right? Because she's saying, these two boys, they're, they're, I mean, they're having a field day inside of me, okay? And she's probably hurting, because they said, I mean, they were crushing each other. When you, you take a look, there was not just wrestling, I mean, they were, okay? The Hebrew is very interesting when you get into it. So, if you're a Hebrew and you're coming out of Egypt, remember, this is the audience. This is the audience to whom the Torah was written. Not you. Moses is writing the Torah. This is our belief. And if he's writing the Torah, who's the first people who are going to read it? The Hebrews coming out of Egypt. And all of a sudden, what are they reading? God speaks to a woman? Are you kidding? This is explosive for the ancient Near East. Okay? Very explosive. Because women in those days, especially in the days of Moses, were under the authority and status of the patriarch. Remember I said Beit Av, the house of the father? That's like an Abraham. That was the patriarchal society that they were in. Now, don't get me wrong. Women had a, a wonderful status. They did. So you can actually read that. But they were under the authority, okay, of the Beit Av. And that's the man. And you're not going to see a woman, okay? You're not going to see Beit Isha, okay? You're going to see a Beit, uh, Beit Av, Beit of the Beit Father. But the Torah holds women in such high esteem, God comes to Rebecca and says, let me tell you what's going on. The younger is going to be the boss of the older. But remember this. So if you're a Hebrew coming out of Egypt, get this. Hagar, remember her? She's an Egyptian. She's a pagan. And what does God do to her? Saves her and her son, and she did nothing to deserve it. Hagar and her son Ishmael were saved by grace and grace alone. And they're not even pagan. She didn't repent. She says, now I believe in you, O God. Okay? That's fascinating. But if you're a Hebrew coming out of Egypt, this is amazing because all of a sudden we're seeing how women are treated in the Torah. The Torah is revolutionary. So there's many women today that are probably women's libbers and all that type of stuff, and they say, oh, how archaic the Bible is, and it's so male-male chauvinistic. Well, as compared to our day, yes, but it's not written to you. It's written to them, and to them, it's revolutionary. We keep on making the mistake by saying, the Bible's written to me. No, it's not. It's written to them, and we have to understand how they understood it. So, Torah holds women very high esteem, and what's interesting is this. I find it fascinating. Now, she's, 
Who's Rebecca? She's a pagan. She's from Haran. She didn't know God. She marries Isaac, right? Now, I find this fascinating. Could it be that Isaac, as the patriarch, okay, taught Rebecca about his God? Now, that makes sense to me. It also makes sense to me, and I've got to study this a little bit more in depth. It makes sense to me that a woman who's married to, like, Isaac, okay, is it the possibility, and that this is interesting, that she must take on the gods of the husband? That makes sense to me, okay, because she's going to be under the authority. She was held in high esteem, don't get me wrong, okay, but in those days, she's going to be under the husband's authority and status, and so therefore, it could very well be that she had to take on the gods of Isaac, which happens to be the one true God. However, but you know what's really cool? Abraham's still alive. Isaac was 60 years old when the boys were born. Okay? Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born. So Abraham would be 160 now. And he died at 175. He's still alive. Can you imagine Rebecca married to Isaac? And all of a sudden Isaac says, my dad's coming. We're going to have dinner tonight. Oh, my father-in-law, I love his stories. And remember Abraham? Why did God choose Abraham? This is huge. God said, I chose him because he will teach his family about me. So could it be both of them? Abraham and Isaac? He's still alive, and he's probably living very close by. I find that interesting. That's just too cool. Now, I don't want to put words in the Torah's mouth, Okay. Uh, I'm not trying to tell you that Abraham taught Rebekah about God. Neither am I trying to tell you that Isaac taught Rebekah about... Somebody taught her. Okay, because all of a sudden... It, matter of fact, when it says she goes to God to inquire, it doesn't say that. She goes to Yahweh. The personal name of God. Not Elohim, but Yahweh. How does she know this? Somebody's got to tell her. All right. So what does she know? This is the key. What does she know? All she knows is this, you guys. I want to be very clear. The only thing that she knows is that the older son will serve the younger, period. That's all she knows. The Torah does not say that she was told about the blessing that, bless, that God blessed Isaac with and also Abraham. It doesn't say that. Could it be that Isaac told her? Sure. Abraham's still alive. Can you imagine the two, the father and son, talking around the fire with Rebecca over there serving dinner and listening to that? It could be. But the Torah is making a point. The only thing she knows, or the only thing maybe that we should have to be concentrating on, I don't know, is the fact that she said, okay, God told me the older is going to serve the younger. Now, in the ancient Near East, we're talking about the birthright, because this, I found this very interesting about the birthright. Really fascinating. Because this starts explaining the story. So I'm going to Dr. Kareed's Torah commentary, and it's related directly to Jacob making the soup, okay, for the birthright. Listen to this. 
The birthright was very, a very important matter in the Bible and in the ancient Near East. So it's not just a biblical thing. The one with the right of the firstborn had preferential status in the family. First, he would receive a double portion of the inheritance. This law was well known in the cultures of the Middle East. Secondly, the right meant that when the father died, the firstborn would assume headship of the family structure. The Nuzi texts from ancient Mesopotamia, dating to the second millennium BC, around Abraham's time, demonstrate, listen to this, that the birthright was transferable. This is key. I didn't know this. This helps explain a lot. There's one case in these Nuzi texts, as they call them, from ancient Mesopotamia, where a, a man basically sold his birthright for a sheep. Now, a sheep is a little bit more valuable than a bowl of soup. Okay? That's exactly what's going on here. The birthright is transferable. Now, think about this. Rebecca meets God. God tells her this. She knows about the birthright. She knows about, but she still doesn't know who the boys are. Because she hears it. They're still in her, right? So you can imagine what's going through. Why? Why will the older serve the younger? What's going on? How is this going to happen? They're not born yet. And that's got to be going through this mom's mind. So in 25, verses 24 through 27, I am actually going to read this. When her days were fulfilled for bearing, bearing here, twins were in her body. Fraternal twins. They're not identical. The first one came out ruddy like a hairy mantle all over. In other words, ruddy means reddish. Okay? The kid was hairy with red hair all over him. So they called his name Harry. No, they called him Esau, which means rough one. Okay? After that, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Yaakov, heel holder. So here's the two kids, Harry and Heel. Okay? Yitzhak was 60 years old when she bore them. The lads grew up. Esau became a man who knew the hunt, a man of the field. But Jacob was a plain man, or Yaakov was a plain man staying among the tents. Now, we need to talk, I need, we need to take a look at the personalities, okay? Because here's the issue. What's the issue I'm after? I'm after is Rebecca. And she's saying, how is this going to happen? How is it that the older is going to serve the younger? So Esau's hairy, Jacob is the heel catcher. And in verse 27, we read, Ish Yodea Tzayid. And Ish Yodea Tzayid basically means an excellent hunter. Now, Yodea comes from the word yada. Yada is that Hebrew word that means a deep, intimate knowing, an experiential knowing, okay? So I know some of you people experientially in terms of we've had experiences together. We have done things together and so on. So I know you more than just, okay, people that are sitting here in chairs tonight. So it's a, it could be a child prodigy. In other words, he was very intimate with hunting and in the field. Now Jacob, in verse 27, 
We talk about the fact that he was a plain man or he was a quiet man, depending on what your translation says, staying among the tents or dwelling in tents. Now, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't say he was a peaceful man. The Hebrew word is tam, T-A-M. That's the transliteration. The, the um, Strong's number is H8535. So taking this to the Gesenius lexicon, not Strong's, never use Strong's concordance to try to see what the Hebrew meaning is. Gives you a picture. But in Gesenius lexicon, Tom basically means a man who's whole. Upright. A man of integrity. Whoa. This is not a peaceful guy. This is an upright, whole, complete, mature man. Okay? A man of integrity. A man who's upright. And who dwelt in tents. Now what's interesting... When you go to Genesis 4.20, I'm not going to go there now, but in Genesis 4.20, it talks about, I think his name is Javan. Javan, or J I can't remember. But there's this guy, okay, he's the first guy who dwells in tents and is a herdsman. Okay, so you read Torah commentary. He's the guy that starts pastoral nomadic living. In other words, living in tents to have herds. So the phrase dwelling in tents basically means somebody is a herdsman. Somebody is a shepherd. Okay, I'm using herdsman because that's what's used here because Isaac is very, very, very rich. Remember that? So that means he had oxen, he had sheep, he may have had camels, he had a lot of cattle. Okay, and so what's Jacob doing? He's dwelling in tents, okay, as a herdsman. And an upright man, he's not a mama's boy. Because remember, Rebecca prefers him, and he's dwelling in tents. And all of a sudden we get this, he's hiding behind mama's skirts? No, he's not. This is a whole man, a man of integrity, and dwelling in tents means he is a herdsman. Now already, though, we have something very interesting going on here. And by the way, my comments come from the JPS Torah commentary by Nahum Sarna with regards to herdsmen and, and Jacob. So again, I'm not trying to give you my opinion. We're trying to get some real good scholarship with regards to uh, Jacob. Now, we get an inkling right off the top of the bat that Esau, okay, already the Torah is implying he doesn't have respect for the family. Why? He is a man of the field. The implication is he's not around. In other words, he's not taking care of family business. He should be assisting Isaac, even though he's an honor, okay? Because now you start studying the firstborn with the birthright, okay? He has rights, status, and responsibility. He's got to learn the family business. And what is this guy doing? We get the implication, okay? We get the suggestion that he does not respect the family. And the business is very complex, and so therefore the firstborn had a lot of responsibilities. So the Torah implies that Jacob, now the Torah implies this, that Jacob steps in, and he's doing 
what Esau should have been doing as the firstborn. He's taking care of family business. He's staying home. He's taking care of the herds. And Esau is not. That's the implication. All right. John Gill, back from the 1800s, 1880, 1860, he has a wonderful Bible commentary, and that's his opinion. His opinion definitely is Jacob steps in to really take over the duties of the firstborn because Esau's not doing it. And that's very likely. Okay, the, the Torah doesn't say it, but the Torah seems to imply it. So, I'm going to go to Genesis 25, 29 through 34. Genesis 25, 29 through 34. And this is where we're going to end tonight. In our next class, we're going to go deeper. We'll be in Genesis 25, 29 through 34. It's exactly where we're going to start. You won't believe what's in here because you don't know the Hebrew and you don't know literally literal constructs that are critical to understanding these verses. It is explosive because in this way it shows us, okay, one step deeper that Esau could care less about his family. Now you say, well, I read that. I'll show you in our next class. So I will see you next class. So I will say, Lech la shalom be Mashiach Yeshua. Go in the shalom of Messiah Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, Jacob is not a peaceful man. He is a man that's described as Tom. And the number is H8535, Strong's number. Primarily, it means complete, upright, perfect, not peaceful, not a milk toast. It implies a mature man, a man who acts like a grown up. Jacob inherently was a man of the tents. In other words, this also implies. That he attended to the family business. He acted like Esau should have acted. Esau was the firstborn. Jacob acted like a mature man, a grown-up man, a one that faces his responsibilities. And he didn't have to face the responsibilities of being the firstborn. Esau did. I think Rebecca saw this. She saw her two boys. She knew them. And she favored Jacob because she saw the danger that Esau presented to the family, to the Beit Av, to the house of the father. And so fits. Esau did what he thought was fun to him, hunting. And his father encouraged him. Now you'll recall the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something very interesting. This is in Matthew 5, starting in verse 43 through 48. And it says, You have heard that it was said, 
you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Greek word there for perfect in the New American Standard here is teleos. Strong's Numbers G5046. And when you go to the Thayer's, Thayer's Greek lexicon, and look up teleos. The Hebrew word that's associated with this Greek word in the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew translation or the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures back in 250 BC, is the word Tom, which is exactly what Jacob is. We are to, okay, love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. Therefore, we will be Tom like God. We'll be complete like him. We'll be righteous like him. We'll be a Tom like a Jacob who's grown up and faces the responsibilities of an adult, of a man. We are to be Tom. Jesus wants us to be Tom. Grow up to be godly men and godly women. Remember, God loves the whole world that he gave his only son. And Jesus is saying, us too. We are to act in the same way. Now in Lesson 62, we're going to continue a study on Jacob and Esau. And it's critical, again, to understand the boys and their character. It's critical to understand a possible motive for Rebecca to use to use Jacob to deceive Isaac. Why would she do that? Could it be that it's all possible, all related to the bait of and the preservation of the family? She knew her son Jacob was Tom. He was doing the work that Esau was neglecting and facing his responsibilities because he was a grown-up, mature man, not like Esau. Could it be that she saw her son Jacob as the one that would keep the family together, especially after Isaac died? So perhaps she deceived her husband using Jacob as a matter of preservation of the family. We'll see that more in Lesson 62. So until then, Shalom.